administrative law doesn't tend to grab a lot of headlines. And even when it does, as happened recently when the Supreme Court issued fast-tracked rulings on disputes over a pair of government vaccine mandates, the actual nuances of administrative law tend not to receive much attention in media coverage. Perhaps that's inevitable, but it's a shame. Administrative law has a huge, if often unseen, impact on our lives. What's more, it closely connects to fundamental issues of constitutional law, especially the separation of powers that all Americans should care about. I think most people are aware that the ideological balance of the Supreme Court has shifted in recent years. And I think many people are aware of some hot button topics where that shift could have an impact. Abortion and gun rights come immediately to mind. I'd submit that administrative law should be mentioned in the same breath as those other issues. It's at least that important, if not more so. And it's something the court is looking at closely these days. This year, the court will likely issue an important decision on what's called the major questions doctrine. It is also likely, if not this term, then soon to revisit and revise an even more important principle known as non-delegation. This is, of course, the Tech Policy Podcast. I am your host, Corbin Barthold. Today, I'll be discussing these issues with Andrew Grossman. He is a partner at Baker Hostetler, where he co-leads the firm's appellate and major motions team. He is also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. As his holding those two positions at once suggests, Andrew is a man of many talents both a master of the universe in the white shoe law firm world, as well as a prominent figure in the DC policy think tank world. If you had a case before the Supreme Court on the major questions doctrine or on non-delegation, Andrew's exactly the guy you'd want representing you. And sure enough, he is counsel of record for one of the parties in West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency, the consolidated case in which the court might consider those issues this term. I am so pleased to have you on, Andrew. Welcome. Thank you, Corbin. Thank you so much for having me. And I should say at the outset, anything I say today is on my own behalf, not necessarily on behalf of my firm or its clients. Uh, Definitely. Sometimes on this show, we dive right into the weeds. Uh, We don't do a lot of administrative law, though. Um, And maybe we should do more because it touches on so many areas of tech policy. you know, it, it touches on every area of American life. That's kind of why it's so important. Uh, but anyway, let's start by, therefore, you know, carefully spelling out what we're what we're talking about. So just very simple at the outset. Non-delegation is sort of a fancy sounding, uh, technical sounding term, but it's a really simple, fundamental principle that everybody should know from sort of uh, middle school civics. So could you lay out what is behind that term? Sure. The jargon makes it sound complicated, but non-delegation is actually really straightforward. And it corresponds with how we all think that the government is supposed to work, the way that when you read the Constitution and you learn about it in school, uh, it's, it's the, the simple model of things. Um, you've got Article One, the legislative branch, and the idea is that the legislative branch makes the laws. And the question is, to what extent can the legislative branch delegate Uh, to the executive branch, things that look an awful lot uh, like making laws. So you have so many rules 
uh, and, and legal principles that come out of the administrative agencies rather than Congress. And non-delegation tries to draw a line by saying there are certain types of policy judgment, fundamental policy choices that have to be made by the legislative branch and that can't be made, can't be delegated to the executive branch. I actually remember taking administrative law in law school and the start of the course was sort of the system as it was designed and it all made so much sense. You've got the legislature, they make laws. You've got the executive, it executes the laws. You've got the judiciary, it resolves disputes. Uh, and that was like the first week of the course. And then from then on, we went into how the system actually works and it was all downhill from there as far as I was concerned, but we'll get into that. We should also, as a matter of table setting, since it's uh, very important to your case, which we'll discuss, uh, major questions rule. So what is that and how does it connect to what you were just saying about non-delegation? Sure. So in recent years, we've seen this phenomenon where you get, particularly when you have a new president coming into office or new leadership of an agency, the president or the agency, they have certain policy ideas that they wanna carry out, but they don't necessarily wanna to go to Congress. Maybe Congress has rejected those ideas. Maybe Congress uh, simply isn't giving attention to them. And so often what we've seen happening is that agencies will scour the statute books and see if they can find some conceivable legal authority, some broadly worded statute passed decades ago that they can use as a hook to carry out that type of policy that they would like to bring in force. Um, the courts have looked at this again and again, and this really goes back to almost the earliest days of the nation. And the courts have recognized that they're not going to light in interpreting those types of statutes. They're not going to lightly presume that Congress intended to give the executive branch and the agencies the authority to make those types of policy judgments in the absence of clear congressional authorization. In recent years, that idea, that doctrine has come to be called the major questions doctrine. So if you have an agency trying to answer a question of what's called vast political and, and economic significance, the courts will give that statute a hard look and say, is this really what Congress was talking about? Or is this something where the legislature really does have to speak more clearly before the agency can act? So I think that's a great answer, which I will then give the, the add on, you know, so far as it goes, like I agree with it, but I think major questions as a term right now is up for grabs. That's my view of it. You'll get to, to push back on that. But we've seen it interpreted as a Chevron rule. So uh, for those not in the know, Chevron deference is this concept from a 1984 Supreme Court case that says agencies in um, interpreting their own organic statute, a statute they're charged with administering, they get um, a lot of deference in construing the meaning of ambiguous terms. And this particularly in a Supreme Court case called King versus Burwell, which involved the Affordable Care Act, we saw major questions uh, hitched very closely to Chevron. And if you were to ask, I'm going to speculate, say Justice Kagan, what does major questions mean? She would come out with that aspect of it very clearly. Meanwhile, uh, the way that you've just described it, I think is much closer to where, say, maybe Justice Gorsuch is going and what he thinks the doctrine means. So 
if you were to ask, say, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kagan, Chief Justice Roberts, what is major question? Do you think that right now you'd get three really different answers? I don't think you would. I think the court has applied it in different contexts, but I think that the way that it's been applied has largely been driven by the way the cases were presented to the court, because it really goes back to a much older canon of statutory interpretation. When courts interpret statutes, they apply a set of rules and presumptions that are known as canons. And it's always been a canon of interpretation of statutes um, that Congress doesn't hold, uh, hide elephants in mouse holes, as Justice Scalia put it so memorably. In other words, if there's some big important policy decision that's being made, if there's some major delegation that's being made to an administrative agency, you would expect for there to be some clear authorization of that. If it was important, if it's a very important issue and the type of issue that's typically important to Congress, you would expect that to be reflected in the statutory text. And the fact that it isn't there uh, creates a presumption that the agency doesn't have that sort of power. So there has been, you know, in the major question cases we've had in recent decades, you know, it's been applied in different contexts. Sometimes it deals with deference. Uh, other times it's been applied with respect to agency power to begin with uh, or, or the scope of delegations and things like that. But it all comes back to that fundamental principle that if it's an important issue for Congress, you would expect Congress to speak clearly about it. That is a very intuitive explanation until, and I being a lawyer as well, so I latch onto this. So you say uh, Congress needs to state clearly that it's handing over authority. What exactly does that mean? And what I have particularly in mind is um, Justice Gorsuch's concurrence. So I, I should unpack this just very briefly. Uh, the federal government did what you were just describing earlier in major questions of um, the president wants a policy behind the scenes, sometimes not so behind the scenes, agencies start rummaging through statutes, they find a provision, and, and in this case it was they wanted a private employer vaccine or test mandate, um, and they used a statute uh, for the uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. I hope I got the acronym right. Um, and the court recently uh, blocked, uh, granted a stay, I should say, of enforcement of that uh, mandate, saying that Congress had not stated clearly in the statute that uh, such an authorization was allowed, you know, to, to do a VAX mandate. The majority just sort of said you needed to be clear and it's not clear. Gorsuch, my sense was, went a bit farther. He didn't say what I'm about to say explicitly, but I got a strong sense that what he was saying is, is to be clear, it can't just be a broad term. You can't say OSHA can take, say, emergency measures. And then within that is like a vax mandate. It needs to be specific. It needs, it, maybe it doesn't literally have to say, OSHA has the power to impose a vax, uh, like a vaccine mandate, but it needs to be more than just, you have emergency powers. Am I imagining that? Uh, and, and if I'm not, what do you think of it? And uh, you know, what is your view of what you know, state clearly means? Sure. So I think that's a really great question. And it really gets into the entire basis of the major questions doctrine. In other words, what is the court trying to do here? And I think there are two ways of looking at it. One is what we just said, 
regarding just this presumption that if it's an important issue, you would expect it to be addressed clearly. But there's another basis for the doctrine, and that's the non-delegation doctrine. This idea that there are certain types of powers that can't be delegated to the executive branch because they're inherently legislative. Congress has to make the hard policy choices. And I think Justice Gorsuch's view, as, as he's explained it uh, in the recent vaccine mandate case, as well as in an earlier case a couple terms ago called Gundy, um, is that the major questions doctrine serves in part to enforce the non-delegation doctrine. And the reason that is, is that when, when agencies are undertaking these sorts of adventuresome policymaking exercises, they're frequently relying on broad interpretations of already very broad statutory language. Um, and they have to, and because they're trying to shoehorn, you know, big policy initiatives into broad statutory language, it's inherently going to raise concerns that the major fundamental policy choices aren't being made by Congress, but are being made by the executive branch in violation of the separation of powers. And so if you look at it from the point of view of avoiding violations of the non-delegation doctrine, you start to see why somebody like Justice Gorsuch would say, well, you really do need a degree of specificity here. You need some indication that Congress has actually answered the policy question. And so it does lead you to approach the major questions inquiry, I think, a little bit differently than if you view it purely as a canon of statutory interpretation. Let's turn to your upcoming oral argument at the Supreme Court. The lead case, as I mentioned, is West Virginia versus EPA. Your counsel of record for the petitioner in Westmoreland Mining Holdings versus EPA. At one level, the case is pretty complex. It is a dispute over the meaning of the Clean Air Act um, that, uh, you know, only lawyers could love, oh, lawyers and environmentalists, I suppose. Uh, there are also, though, these more fundamental issues, major questions, non-delegation, they're very much at play. So um, could you give a sort of layman's explanation of what's at issue in the case and then how do these fundamental issues play in? Sure. So what really happened in this instance, this is about EPA's authority uh, to reorganize the electricity generation sector uh, in, the, in the American economy. Um, EPA, of course, regulates uh, emissions of pollutants from all kinds of different sources, whether it's cars or industrial facilities and so forth. But back in the Obama administration, the president um, tried to push through Congress regulation, uh, a, a statute rather, that would effectively encourage the replacement of fossil fuel fired, fired power plants uh, by with um, clean type generation, so solar, wind power, et cetera. The bill never went through Congress. There was a lot of political opposition um, and there was a lot of opposition from the states that would be adversely affected in terms of their resource industries, in terms of electricity costs and so forth. So the president turned to EPA and told EPA, what can you do? Can you achieve this same goal? He actually issued an order directing EPA to explore this and to move forward. Um, and that's what EPA did. EPA went through the statute books and it administers uh, a lot of provisions in the Clean Air Act. It's a very complicated statute. And they settled on this statute called uh, Section 111D. And it is a backwater of the Clean Air Act. It is this provision that has been used a total of about six times in 50 years. And it's sort of a catch-all provision. So you've got 
a, a very important Clean Air Act program that regulates you know, most pollutants. That's called the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. You've got another one that regulates hazardous air pollutants. And then you've got this 111D program for kind of what's left over. Um, and this 111D program, it allows the agency to identify what is the best sort of technology or technique that certain types of generally industrial facilities should be using. And if they were using that, um, what would their emissions be? In other words, if everybody applied the best technology, the best techniques, what would the emission levels be? Um, so you think about it, you'd say, well, that's totally within EPA's bailiwick. They could say you should have a more efficient coal plant uh, or something like that. You should install the best technology or use the best work practices so that your carbon dioxide emissions are a little bit lower. Um, and that's traditionally how EPA has used this authority. Uh, but what EPA did here was something entirely different because if you just looked at it that way, you wouldn't be able to meet the, the uh, Obama administration's, the, their target for reducing carbon emissions. And so EPA did something that was entirely different. What EPA said was, we view the best technology for say a coal-fired power plant as replacing it with a solar, <laughs> with a solar plant or a windmill. Um, or something like that. Um, and the agency had never done this before. And in fact, what, what the agency is doing is interpreting this statute um, to set these emission limitations based on uh, replacing existing sources or using them less uh, in favor of cleaner emitting sources. And so that effectively gives the agency the power to reorganize any sector of the economy that has any type of emissions associated with it. So, you know, here you, you, the clean power plan was about power plants, but you can imagine the same thing about petroleum refineries uh, or about uh, paper mills, uh, really anything that is associated with any type of emissions. So anyway, the, the Obama administration, EPA, came out with that rule. It was called the Clean Power Plan. Uh, it was challenged in court by a consortium of states and private parties. I, I should say that I did represent uh, the states in that litigation. Uh, went up to the Supreme Court on a stay application and the Supreme Court blocked the rule from taking effect. Then the Trump administration came into office and before any court ruled on the merits of the Clean Power Plan, the Trump administration repealed it uh, in a rule that's known as the ACE rule. Um, that, of course, got challenged by all of the uh, environmental, non-governmental organizations. Um, and the D.C. Circuit sided with them in vacating the repeal of the Clean Power Plan. And so that's the case that we then brought up to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, um, the, the EPA's position on this flipped again because you had the election of President Biden and the Biden uh, administration EPA now takes the position that the original clean power plan interpretation is perfectly fine. Um, so there are a lot of twists in the road in terms of how this case has come up through the courts and through the agencies, but it really does raise this fundamental question of, you know, can an agency interpret its, its statutory authority to give it this sort of open-ended power to point at any sector of the economy and just start replacing entire portions of industries with potentially even just different industries altogether? And if the agency does in fact have that power, does that violate the non-delegation doctrine? Because, you know, 
changing, uh, transforming uh, major sectors of the economy, one would think is the kind of policy choice that traditionally has been made by Congress. In fact, co Congress has been reluctant to give agencies much lesser powers uh, in terms of phasing out pollutants or, or other types of shifts in industrial technologies. For any listeners who have struggled to get through that, Andrew has just given the cleanest, clearest explanation actually of that case that I think I've, I've heard, which gets to a fundamental point I was saying at the outset that administrative law, I don't think gets the attention it deserves. And it's because it often has a facade of a lot of really technical, complex legal issues. But underneath it all, it's actually a really great demonstration, that description of what you were talking about, the elephants and mouse holes. Because if you think about this as sort of Congress passes this extraordinarily long law with all these technical things, and Andrew did a great job of explaining it, but at the end of the day, what, you know, so buried in some sub subsection, they use a term like performance standards and the elephants and mouse holes principle is avoiding the ability of agencies to say, ha ha, you know, gotcha, the particular way you worded this little sub subsection, now we can uh, theoretically put us back to the stone age in terms of energy. We could just shut down everything if, if that's what we so chose. So I actually think it's a great example of, um, and to us lawyers, this is a almost tired phrase because the Supreme Court uses it all the time, but the notion that um, an agency cannot assume that there is an elephant stuffed into a mouse hole of, you know, subsection, say, 111D. Let me return to... Gundy, you mentioned, which is such a huge case. Uh, short version, the uh, Congress passes a law for um, like a sex offender registry, tells the attorney general, please make rules to uh, determine how this registry works for offenders who were, I forget, I think were convicted before the law was passed. Uh, but basically says, you know, make those rules ex nihilo, just do, do what you want. And it goes up to the Supreme Court. And at the time, there's only eight justices. Uh, Kavanaugh did not partake. He had not fully uh, gotten plugged in yet. You end up with this weird 4-4 split where Alito creates the fifth vote, but just saying, um, I, I'm not interested in revisiting this issue until basically, you know, we have a full bench. Uh, Justice Gorsuch writes with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas wanting to uh, reinvigorate the non-delegation doctrine. And then since then, uh, you know, Kavanaugh gets plugged in, uh, Justice Barrett joins the court. And I should say Alito, even in his short concurrence, you know, made it very clear he doesn't have sympathy for a, uh, a dead non-delegation rule, if you will, that allows capacious standards for administrators to apply as they will. So it's one of the it's one of the strangest things I think I've seen in terms of the Supreme Court having a doctrine that's almost like a like a dead man walking. Uh, even Chief Justice Roberts, who we know is an incrementalist and moves very slowly on a lot of things, he was with Justice Gorsuch. He didn't join, say, Justice Alito. Uh, which leads me back to you with what I think is at least a hard question. You keep, uh, you've said a couple times, you know, Congress needs to make the policy choices. 
Uh, and again, this has come up a couple times this episode, something that sounds intuitive when you say it, and I would agree is correct when one just says it, but my goodness, you know, what does it mean? Uh, Gorsuch's dissent in Gundy, he says, Congress has to make the policy choices, agencies can fill up the details. Um, uh, where do we go from there? What, 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 how does he put the meat on those bones? Well, you know, the joke about the non-delegation doctrine is that it's had one good year, that was 1937, uh, when the court applied it twice, and there hasn't been another case since then where the court has applied the doctrine to invalidate the application of a, of a federal statute. But I don't think that's quite right, because you have this long series of cases, and I think the law professor and former government official Cass Sunstein was really the first to kind of put this all together. Uh, in a coherent way. But you have a long series of cases where courts, uh, and the Supreme Court included, have sort of heroically reinterpreted federal statutes to cabin agency authority um, so as to avoid non-delegation concerns. So you have this sort of, you might call it a dormant non-delegation doctrine. It's not being applied in and of itself, but it's the backdrop to so many different types of cases. And I think that gets directly to your question because there is a lot of meat on the bones about how courts look at these problems and when they see non-delegation type problems. Um, you know, in part, you know, in, in the Gundy case, that is what the court did. It interpreted the statute to include a, effectively a feasibility uh, criteria. Was it feasible to apply the criteria that were in the statute to people who are convicted of sex offenses prior to enactment of the statute. Now, it wasn't quite there in the text, uh, but the court's view was if we read the statute that way, it at least limits the discretion and it means that Congress would have made the policy choice. I think we can all debate whether that was the best reading of the statute, but at the end of the day, it does go a long way to solving the non-delegation problem in that case. Um, and and you, see, you see the same thing, interestingly enough, in the late, 1970s and early 80s in two cases that involved the same OSHA provision uh, that was being relied on uh, for the Biden administration's vaccine mandate. Um, the court at that point uh, and it, it came very close to holding that that provision did in fact violate the non-delegation doctrine, but ultimately in a controlling decision by Justice Stevens, the court reinterpreted it to impose at least some criteria uh, on how that provision applies in certain circumstances so that the agency didn't just have wide open authority uh, to implement emergency measures uh, under, uh, under sort of a standardless approach. In other words, it forced Congress to make the policy decisions. Now, why do I talk about these cases where the courts haven't applied the non-delegation doctrine? Because I think that where the courts have heroically reinterpreted these statutes, you can get a lot of meaning about how they were reinterpreted so as to avoid the non-delegation problem. In every instance, the courts have identified, have put their fingers on what would be a major policy issue? What is the policy issue that's being, that's being put before the court? And then you have to determine, you know, under the standard tools of statutory interpretation, is it there? Did Congress answer the question? Um, so if you go outside of the strict non-delegation domain and look a little bit more broadly into statutory interpretation cases, major questions cases, uh, and in some cases, other types of statu of what are called constitutional avoidance cases, where the court interprets statutes so as to avoid potential constitutional violation, I think you get a lot of guidance for the type of clarity that's necessary in statutes 
uh, for Congress to fulfill its constitutional duty to set the policy. What you have just said, well, it, first of all, it, it fits in with something that Justice Gorsuch said in his, in his Gundy dissent, which is sometimes when one constitutional doctrine doesn't do its work, hydraulic pressure uh, leads it, other doctrines to, to do the work instead. Justice Kagan, in her plurality opinion in Gundy, said if this statute is unconstitutional, then most of government is unconstitutional, which I think that takes it a, a bit far. I think that's a bit alarmist. But I, I do think that there are people in this space who for whom that is the goal. They would love to take the non-delegation doctrine and basically do some real uh, swamp draining, if you will, in D.C., but what you've just described is really more of a, a pragmatic, if we're looking at sort of the, the uh, sorry to be flippant to listener, like, you know, the Vox and Slate readers of the world saying, don't worry, uh, you know, this might uh, create incremental changes. But at the end of the day, if the non-delegation doctrine gets revived, the world's going to look a lot like it does now. Uh, we're, it's, it's almost like a rearrangement of doctrine. It won't be exactly the same, but also... Um, we're not going to like shut down the, uh, the FTC and the FCC. Uh, do you have thoughts on that? Sure. You know, I don't think anybody would accuse the chief justice of being a radical. And as you pointed out, he, he did join, uh, Justice Gorsuch's opinion in Gandhi. But I think even if you go back earlier than that, the chief justice in his, uh, dissent in city of Arlington versus FCC from about a decade ago, um, expressed this very commonsensical view that, just an ordinary person looking at the operations of government would sometimes be confused that things that look an awful lot like laws, like statutes, things that you would expect uh, Congress to play the leading role in doing are actually being done by administrative agencies. Now, it's not everything those agencies do. Uh, it's not the filling up of the details. It's not making uh, factual determinations that trigger the implementation of consequences that have been specified by Congress, it's making fundamental policy decisions. Um, and it's when, and when the agencies are making those types of fundamental policy decisions, like I said, it doesn't happen all the time, but when it does happen, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And I think that's the kind of thing where there's a broad based understanding that the administrative state gradually uh, and the doctrines governing it have just gone a little bit too far. They've become a little bit too loose uh, about the powers that the executive branch is able to exercise in the absence of authorization and policymaking by Congress. Um, you know, I think another example of this, uh, you know, Justice Kavanaugh is not considered to be, I think, a radical uh, or, or really extreme. He's considered to be, I, I think, conservative, but fairly mainstream in the way that he views administrative law doctrines. And I think everybody would acknowledge that he is a complete expert in that area, having served for so many years on the D.C. Circuit, which hears so many administrative law cases. And, you know, one of his, I, I think, most famous decisions uh, from when he was on the D.C. Circuit involved uh, one of the FCC's rules uh, attempting to implement net neutrality for Internet service providers. Um, and he dissented from the D.C. Circuit decision upholding that rule. And he laid out, I thought, a very sensible application of the major questions doctrine that kind of worked right along the lines that we're discussing today, where, you know, yeah, you have a broadly written statute for the FCC, the Federal Communications Act, but it doesn't really anticipate 
service providers in the role of internet service providers or how they might be categorized exactly under the statute. It had a certain view of common carriers and it was very clear as to where that would certainly apply. But it was, but it was by no means clear that that section of regulation, the common carrier regulation, which is a very oppressive form of regulation, very controlling, uh, would apply beyond those grounds. Uh, to things like internet service providers. And so Justice Kavanaugh's view wasn't that Congress couldn't authorize that or that Congress couldn't create some type of factual trigger that would allow the FCC to make factual findings that would trigger common carrier regulation. His point was merely that Congress hadn't done it. And it's a very major policy decision. And so it's the kind of thing that you would expect to see Congress to address. And since it wasn't clearly stated in the statute, that was a problem for the agency. You've done a very good job as we head toward the end here of illustrating why the Tech Policy Podcast is talking about this issue. Um, I'm confident actually on this show that we'll be talking about uh, net neutrality in the future after uh, Gigi Sohn uh, presumably will be confirmed onto the FCC. So you've, you've also previewed probably coming events here. Oral argument in West Virginia versus EPA, February 28th. Uh, we should expect a decision probably in June, maybe earlier, but not later. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Andrew. I always ask people, you know, what they're up to. You're uh, being in private practice. Uh, you know, you, uh, I don't know if you have an answer, but are there any cases you're working on? Are there any papers you're writing? Is there anything you'd like to uh, share with us on your way out that we should look forward to? Oh gosh, there are too many cases in the pipeline to even describe. Uh, but you know, we've had a big focus in recent years on these types of separation of powers issues. You know, for too many years, uh, the lower courts and you know, to an extent, the Supreme Court just hadn't really been paying attention to these fundamental separation of powers questions. And at the end of the day, it's the separation of powers that really protects all of our rights and our liberties. Um, you know, the things like the Bill of Rights are really great, but you know, to have a government of limited powers is such an important thing. And it's really what makes the United States and the freedom we have different than the type of system that's experienced in so many other countries in the world. And we've got a Supreme Court now, as well as lower court judges who are paying more attention to these things, who are interested in the doctrines and are rethinking some of the uh, cases that have come through the system over the past 50 or so years. Um, so there really is a lot of foment in the field. And you know, I, I think you're right uh, with, I think, where, where you began um, our discussion today that administrative law, you know, everybody just assumes it's this boring field and it doesn't really apply to anything. But there really is a lot of excitement in the field these days because the law is changing and it's changing in a way I think that ultimately will redound to all of our, our freedom and flourishing. Thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's a bit sappy to put it this way, but it's it's an issue that people should care about as American citizens. Um, and I almost wish there were some way that we could rename administrative law. Um, constitutional law as a term is too broad for it, but it it touches on the real constitutional laws, as you mentioned. Um, one last thing I'll, I'll mention that is interesting. I mean, Justice Scalia uh, said exactly the point you've just made, that the separation of powers is really where it's at in terms of, of the Constitution and why the Constitution matters and why our constitutional Constitution has stood the test of time and worked well where, where others that just name rights have not. 
Um, and yet he was not a hawk on the non-delegation doctrine in his day. I mean, he um, he certainly didn't just go along with uh, the majority. Uh, I'm thinking of like the Mistretta case, but um, it'd be interesting to see. It, it's just a shame he's not around. I'd love to hear his thoughts on what's going on right now. You know, Justice Scalia was a very complicated justice, and I think it's a little bit too sim simple to say that he was not, I, he was not exactly a hawk on non-delegation, but he was the foremost stringent, uh, he was foremost in terms of his stringency in interpreting statutes. And so mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if, if you're representing an agency before the Supreme Court, the justice you probably have the most to be worried about was Justice Scalia, because he was going to take a very hard line in interpreting the scope of the agency's statutory authority. So it might not have been under the guise of the non-delegation doctrine, but in many, many cases, he would get to the same place. I will not bore our listeners by diving into, yes, well, Justice <laughs> Scalia was a hardcore Chevron step one proponent. Uh, we'll have to do a whole other episode just on uh, Justice Scalia and and the Chevron doctrine. I I'm just gonna my, my pleasure. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Um, good luck in your case and in your your future endeavors. I'll definitely continue to watch your work closely. Uh, I'm Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Until next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.